lest we forget there was a zeal and there was a zest and there was an endless devotion of this man to work very hard. And I meet lazy Christians, I meet lazy pastors, and they want God to bless their ministry. And they're not willing to work hard. This is Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. We're profiling the prophet Elijah in a mini-series from 1st and 2nd Kings. We've seen that Elijah was a mighty man of God and that God used him to effect some pretty spectacular miracles, including raising a boy from the dead and destroying 800 prophets of Baal. But we also looked last time at the discouragement that Elijah faced following his success on Mount Carmel. Today we're introduced to the prophet Elisha, who will eventually take over Elijah's commission. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he recalls how, despite seeing the power of God at work through Elijah, Queen Jezebel had hardened her heart. Here's a woman with a callous heart. She had the, heard the same revelation. It was all over town. All the prophets are dead. God did a miracle. No one could deny it. And you would have thought it would have brought this couple to repentance, but it does not. She will not change her mind. Verse 3, and he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Run, Elijah, run. He's got the Jezebel jitters. Here's a map just to refresh your memory where we're at. Up here in the north, just south of the Sea of uh, Galilee, the Jordan River comes down to the Dead Sea, and just north of the Dead Sea is this place called Jezreel. He leaves Jezreel, and he goes south to Bathsheba, It's 120 miles. And if you remember the rest of the chapter, before he's done, he's going to make his way down to the Mount of Horeb, also called Mount Sinai in Scripture, the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's the covenant-making place. So it's the natural place that God is going to have him to go to. So he gets to Beersheba, and the text tells us what he did, verse 4, but he himself all alone, separated from other people, went a day's journey into the wilderness. So here's this man of God who proved that Baal was no God at all, no entity at all, and he's scared to death. He's lost perspective. He's discouraged. And it's easy for any of us to get discouraged when we don't believe what we're saying today. Great is your faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And day after day after day after day after day, God shows his faithfulness. I was reminding someone recently, God has been faithful to you for these three years. He is going to be faithful through this summer for you. And it's not enough to go to 120 miles. He goes another day's journey by biblical standards. That's another 15 miles or so into the wilderness. And this text says he came and sat down under a juniper tree. Some of your Bibles say a broom tree. Remember, here's a picture of a juniper tree. If you've been to the Dead Sea and that whole area and all the way down to Bathsheba, it's, it's just as dry as a bone. I mean, it rains for a short time. The floods come down off of those mountains. Everything's green for about a month. Enough grass grows for the goats to feed on them throughout the summer. 
but it's a dry, barren place. But there is a beautiful juniper tree. It's a great shade tree, and it's able to grow on this rugged terrain. And oftentimes, that's what discouraged people do. They get alone when they really need other people. Discouragement and loneliness are often Siamese twins. It would have been much better for him to have come alongside another believer. But he sits under a juniper tree. Notice he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Lord, I've had it. I'm turning in my prophet's badge. Kill me, Lord. I'm no better than my fathers. Everybody killed them. You might as well take me. I've had it. And thank God he didn't answer that prayer. I think of some of the moronic things that I prayed for in my life, and thank God he said no. And so this is one tired prophet. And God ministers to him as he delivers food twice by an angel. He awakes after a long, well-deserved sleep, and he makes his way down to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And when he is there, God gives him three responsibilities. Pick it up in verse 15, where we were last time. The Lord, Yahweh, said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Now he's going to go all the way north, past north of the Sea of Galilee, all the way up into Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel, king over Aram, That's the first job that he has to do. God has a job for him. You need to get back to work, back into ministry, get out of this introspective mode, go back to ministry. In addition, there's a second king he is to anoint, verse 16. In Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And then the third task that brings us into our text this morning. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abimeholah, you shall anoint him as prophet in your place. So his third responsibility is to find this young man named Elisha because he's going to draft him into prophetic service. Now, that does not mean that he's relieved of his duties. God is not saying, hey, I used you in a great, tremendous way, but you got so despondent and so depressed, I've got a replacement. Not at all. He's going to give him a compatriot in the ministry, but he's also going to give him one to disciple. When you read the the chapters that follow, it just seems so quick. But you have to read the chronology carefully because he has this relationship with Elisha where he disciples him. And based on the chronology of the text, it's somewhere between eight and ten years before God ever sweeps him up into heaven in that marvelous chariot ride. So go find an associate. He's going to shoulder your burden. I've already picked him out for you. Remember, James says he's a man with a nature just like ours. He had forgotten God's promises. He had forgotten God's provisions. He had forgotten God's power. He's restored. He's refreshed. So, verse 19, he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. And he with the 12th, and Elisha passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. Elijah found Elisha, who is hard at work on a farm. And by the way, that, among other reasons, is, I think, why God chose this man. Not only did he have a heart for God, but he had a heart for hard work. Put out in the margin next to verse 19, 2 Timothy 2.6, 2 Timothy 2.6. 
Paul is calling pastors, Timothy, by uh, application in the context of 2 Timothy 2, but by application, all pastors, to work hard. And he gives three illusions of what hard work looks like, and one of the illusions is that of a farmer. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. And the Greek word for hardworking means work to the point of exhaustion. And it is indispensable to God's work. And let me just say, here's your Father's Day sermon. One of the things that we should do as fathers and that you might help your sons or daughters do as a grandfather is to teach your children how to work hard. You ought to teach them to work until they're red in the face and their tongue is hanging. This young man came to our house and my sons were trimming the, you know, the edge along the street. And this boy was 12 years old. He said, I thought it just grew that way. Overwhelmed with privilege. And we have a generation of kids who know how to play video games, but they don't know how to operate a lawnmower. Oh, we can pay to have it done. Maybe you can, but maybe you could pay to get your kids to sweat a little bit. The book of Proverbs reminds us over and over and over again that sluggards never make good farmers, and lazy people are never successful in church ministry, and lazy pastors are never successful as pastors. And the notion of hard work in ministry doesn't really sell in this day of uh, feel-good Christianity. Add to that, you've got some Christians who talk about resting to the exclusion of working. You just rest in the Lord. We are to rest in the Lord, but it's not an either or, it's a both and. When Paul wrote the church at Corinth, listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We are to work hard as we rest in the grace of God. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life and ministry, then you know that in an exceptional way, God's favor was over his life. And I'm sure there are many explanations for that. And I certainly do not want to take away from the sovereignty of God over his life, nor the power of God through his life. But lest we forget there was a zeal and there was a zest and there was an endless devotion of this man to work very hard. And I meet lazy Christians, I meet lazy pastors, and they want God to bless their ministry. And they're not willing to work hard. Hard work is part of ministry for the Lord. You know, it is hard work to prepare to teach that children's class. It is hard work to prepare to teach that ABF. It is hard work to work with those children. My wife is there in the first hour every week in the little nursery, and she said, Carl, this young couple came in first time ever, and they gave me their baby, and two minutes later, he was Mr. Fusshead the whole time. But I was determined that this couple would not be called, and I worked with that baby, and she said, I am exhausted. It's hard work to learn the music sometimes if you really want to do it well. It is hard work to take responsibility as a deacon with your families. It is hard work to park the cars, especially when it's cold and it's wet. 
It's hard work, and it's not by accident that God often chooses shepherds and farmers and fishermen and others who know how to put in a hard day's work. So here's this brother. He's out there working hard on the farm. Verse 19 again. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12. Now this gives us a picture. He's acting as the crew chief, so he has certain leadership skills because he's the 12th man. And he's got the 11 sets plowing before him. And each have a set of oxen. It reminds me of those farm pictures where, you know, an echelon formation, you got one tractor behind another, behind another, behind another. That's the picture here. This is no small operation. And no doubt that his father, Shaphat, was an influential leader because verse 16 calls the town Abel Mehola. Abel Mehola. It's two Hebrew words that literally mean meadow of dancing. In the Hebrew scriptures, oftentimes a place is named after an event that took place or a certain person or very often and most often what the town, what the place was actually like. This was a meadow of dancing. Why? Because there was a lot of happiness, a lot of joy. It was some rich farmland. And these people were blessed. If this were a Hallmark movie, we'd call it Happy Valley or something like that. Now, the last part of verse 19 tells us that Elijah evidently walked across the field to where Elisha was, where he's plowing. Notice. And Elijah passed over him and threw his mantle on him. Now, the Hebrew word for mantle is adoreth. And it's a word that literally means glory or honor. And so when Elijah takes the mantle and he places it on Elisha's shoulder, he is giving him his glory, his honor. Everyone knew what it meant. Everyone knew that Elijah was saying, you are going to be my protege. You're going to be my disciple should you take it. The mantle of a prophet was the sign and signature of the prophet. It stood for all that he represented, for all that he taught. And so Elijah is calling Elisha by the will of God because God dictated this into full-time ministry. I want you to come, Elisha, and I want you to follow me. And in so doing, I'm going to pass the authority of my office to you. And Elisha understood precisely what God was calling him to through his prophet. He understood that, and he immediately goes. At the beginning of verse 20, we read, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And then if you will notice again in verse 21, he arose and followed Elijah. I had them both underlined in my Bible. Now, getting back to this concept of being a disciple, in New Testament terms, Elisha is both convinced and he is going to be a contributing disciple. Clearly, Elisha, in following and ministering to Elijah, is following and ministering to his Lord. And if you and I are ever going to be a contributing disciple, then among other things, we need to carry out the unique plan that God has for our lives. We must first recognize the call to be a disciple. It's called salvation. But we must recognize that God has a plan, and he has a person for you to follow. It was not simply that Elisha was following Elijah. 
Elijah was a man of God. God had given him explicit instructions as we saw, go and anoint this man to be your prophet. And this man knew who Elijah was. Everyone in the country knew who Elijah was, that he was God's representative and that God was calling him into the ministry. And understand that when God calls you into the great commission, which he has called every child of God to, He's not calling you to a movement. He's not calling you to an organization. He is calling you to a person, and his name is Jesus. Hold your finger here and turn to the gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 for just a moment. Go to Luke chapter 10. I want you to see something that's very, very important. Luke chapter 10. If you lose perspective and you think that God's call first is to some plan or a movement or an organization, sooner or later you're just going to grow weary. Perspective always influences outcome. And nowhere is that more true than in this process of discipleship. Look at Luke chapter 10, and let's start in verse 38. Now, as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a village, it's Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his words. Now, if you're new to the Bible, there's this family. Mary and Martha are are sisters. They had a brother named Lazarus, and they lived in a little town called Bethany. If uh, you are standing on the Mount, uh, the Temple Mount, you look right across to the Mount of Olives. And on the backside of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem, is this little town called Bethany. Tourists don't go there today. It's an Arab town and it's not all that friendly to Taurus, so typically no one ever goes there. Uh, I've always wanted to go there, but it's just a place they don't let you go. So here they are in Bethany, and this family loved Jesus, cared for Jesus. It was a place that he would often be, they would feed him and take good care of him. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Now, you can imagine, here's a woman who wants everything to be perfect when Jesus shows up. This is not just anyone. These people are convinced that this is God in a body. She wants it right. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you can almost hear the love in his voice, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, why does the Lord Jesus give this ever so kind and gentle rebuke to Martha? I mean, someone had to cook the meal and be be a servant. Now, please understand, he is not reprimanding her for all of her preparations, for literally her much service, as the margin here in the NASB renders it. He was rebuking her because she was distracted, meaning she was pulled away, literally. The King James says she was cumbered. And then in the very next verse, verse 41, she was worried and bothered. She's out of fellowship with the Lord. Why? Because she's not spending time with the Lord Jesus, and that was really more important right now, listening to his word. She's serving hard in the kitchen, but her service obviously is not an overflow of her relationship with her Lord. And this is a very important principle that runs through the New Testament scriptures, that with much service there must be much communion. 
that if you're going to serve the Lord Jesus, it needs to come out of a close relationship with him. Time with Christ always takes precedent over activity for Christ. Some mornings I wake up early and I look at the day in front of me and I say, Lord Jesus, you're going to have to help me. And the temptation is just to go and to get into it. And I said, no, I'm going to spend this hour with you. And we're going to have this time alone because it is so critical for me to be successful and to serve you. But here's a woman. She's committing what I would call a Christian sin. She's not out of fellowship because she's out carousing or she got drunk or... No, her sin is she's not being with the Lord. She's not in his presence. And so she's bothered. And sometimes when people come to the church and all they can do is find fault, and they say, well, you should do it this way. This is what we did back in our church. And they're crabby and they're irritable. And, you know, those are usually people who don't spend time with Christ. I frequently see that as a pastor. And let me just say, if, if your service has become burdensome, and you've lost the joy for whatever kind of ministry God has given you, almost always it's indicative that you're not really spending time, not in a mechanical sense, but I mean just time with the Lord where he speaks to you and refreshes you. And very often what people then do is they just quit. I'm not serving anymore. Let someone else do it. They think that's the solution. They sit, soak, and they sour. They don't really serve. Very often, people come into my office and occasionally, what's the problem? I'm just worn out. I'm burned out. Let me ask you a question. Tell me about your devotional life. I mean, your time with the Lord. And almost always with an embarrassing look, you know, I don't really have one, Pastor. That's the real problem. Look at his counsel. One thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from you. There's two kinds of Christians who are sitting with me today. There are some who are very diligent, who want to serve with the best intentions, but they're doing it at the expense of spending time with Jesus, of being in close fellowship with him. And one thing is necessary. And the good part that Jesus underscores was listening to his word. Now, I know the Bible does not say, thou shalt have a daily quiet time. So I'm not talking about some rigid, rigid legalism here. But there are many, many, many passages throughout the Bible that affirm of our need to linger in the presence of God. Only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. And it will not be taken away from her because it yields fruitfulness. And whereas the person who serves out of an irritable, crabby, joyless spirit, they may be working their behind off but it will be wood, hay, and stubble at the judgment seat of Christ. So if you are to be a contributing disciple, there's a person that you are called to serve, in a, to follow. In addition, the Scripture affirms a contributing disciple recognizes there's a people to serve. There's a person to follow, but there's a people to serve. Again, we read here, beginning in verse 20, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. And then again in verse 21, then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. 
So Elijah's first response to the call in that he, he wants to immediately minister to him. He's a servant. And when you follow the Lord and when you're really following him, you're going to be serving other people. And this man was usable because he had a servant's heart. Put out in the margin, would you, next to this verse, next to verse 21, 2 Kings 3.11. 2 Kings 3.11, let me read it to you. After God has taken Elijah up to heaven in a chariot ride, and he's raptured up into heaven, Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, new king in place, will ask this question. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? that we may inquire of the Lord by him. And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, and listen very carefully to his answer, because his description of Elisha the prophet is very telling of the kind of person he is. One of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shephard, is here, who used to pour water in the hands of Elijah. Now, that's a significant statement. He poured water on the hands of Elijah. That's humble service. You see, a Jew would have to have his hands ceremonially cleaned. And rather than Elijah having to go to the well and to draw his own water, Elisha would get the water such that every time he needed to eat, he would pour the water on his hands. And so he had a posture, he had an attitude of servanthood towards this man of God. And if you are ever going to be used of God, if you're ever going to do anything that is lasting and holy and eternal, among other things, you must be a servant. Listen to some of these verses, Galatians 5 and verse 13. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not use your freedom. Don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serving one another. There's an assumption that we serve one another. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, 11, but the greatest among you shall be your servants. Or Peter said in 1 Peter 4 and verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When God saved you, he gifted you. It's different from a natural talent like singing or a mechanical skill. You have a spiritual gift. And as you grow in Christ, that gift will begin to show itself, whatever it might be. It might be the gift of giving. It might be evangelism. It might be teaching, serving, helps, administration. But you have a gift. And just like a baby, as a baby grows, there are natural talents that God bred into them at the moment of conception begin to manifest themselves, even so in the spiritual realm. And so God wants to ideally match your giftedness with an area of responsibility. Though in the non-signed gifts in the New Testament, we all share a common responsibility. So you can't, as a cop-out, say, well, I don't have the gift of giving, so I don't tithe, or I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't share my faith. No, there's a common responsibility with all 16 non-signed gifts in the New Testament. But the assumption here is that we will serve one another. When we conclude our message, Burning Your Bridges, Dr. Brogy will look at the importance of serving one another and why we're all called to do so. To listen again to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI6. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at Elijah and search the scriptures. 
For thousands of years, no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel. It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah, and it is where he will usher in his second coming. Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th or October the 7th to October the 17th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything. 